The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the Republican senators who say paid sick leave for people with the coronavirus will make workers lazy. That's what Ron Johnson says. He represents Wisconsin. And we'll talk about that with our man in Madison, John Nichols. And we'll also talk about the Kushners and the coronavirus with Amy Willens. She's our chief Jared correspondent. But first, Trump and the coronavirus economic crisis. For that, we turn to Paul Krugman, the New York Times columnist and Nobel Prize winning economist. He's written several bestsellers, and now he has a new one out. It's called Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. Paul Krugman, welcome to the program. Hi there. Well, the thing that's on everybody's mind uh, this week, of course, is the coronavirus. What can you tell us about your assessment of where we stand in the coronavirus? Okay. Now, I have to admit, I did not see this one coming. Probably should have because epidemiologists have been warning us for a while. The coronavirus it actually ties together a couple of themes, uh, certainly themes that I raise in arguing with zombies and themes that I've worried about uh, over time. Um, one of them is just uh, sort of understanding modern globalization. I mean, the, uh, the reason that this is so economically scary, in some level, uh, it matters less what might happen to GDP than the fact that we might all die. But, uh, the, uh, but in terms of, of the economics, what's happening now is that we live in a world where globalization isn't the old-fashioned thing, where you produce you know, wheat in one place and wine in another place and so on. It's, it's a world of these global supply chains where everything is integrated with everything else. And China is in many ways the workshop of the world, and it's currently largely not shut down. So that's a, that's a pretty serious blow to all of us. And then the kind of situation we find ourselves in, this is we're in a, a very vulnerable situation where the, the, the economy's shock absorbers are shot. The normal response to uh, an economic downturn is that the Federal Reserve and its counterparts abroad cut interest rates, and that 
perks up spending and that keeps things rolling along. But interest rates are very, very low to start with. There isn't very much room to cut. There's actually none at all in, in much of the world and hardly any in the United States. And here comes this thing, which aside from disrupting production, it's also going to disrupt consumption. People are not going to go out to eat. People are not going to travel. Um, and and we have no easy way of responding to it. So this is, this is I, I, I wrote a lot about depression economics because the 2008 shock pretty put, pushed us into this territory where, where the easy answers to a depressed economy no longer were sufficient. And we're pretty much back into depression economics again now. And, of course, there's the political side of the coronavirus. Uh, the president's main concern seems to be with the stock market. First of all, the stock market is just way, way less important, either for its economic significance or as an indicator than people seem to imagine. I mean, the famous old remark by the great economist Paul Samuelson was that the stock market um, had predicted nine of the last five recessions. <laughs> uh, the, uh, what, what the health of the market is not the health of the economy. And the, it's true that when the stock market falls, people feel poorer, but uh, you know, most people don't own a lot of stock, and uh, the the people who are who do own a lot are actually tend to be very affluent and and have a uh, are their spending is not going to be that much affected by falling stocks. So the stock market really shouldn't be a concern. But of course, for for Trump, it's a symbol of what he imagines to be uh, his his credible success. I think it's almost a, a, a an emblem of his virility or something. And uh, so for him, it matters a lot. For the rest of us, not so much, except except that it is interesting. Uh, so um, uh, as we speak, uh, the, the Fed just cut interest rates dramatically, uh, but dramatically is still probably not remotely enough given where we are. And the stock market proceeded to plunge, basically saying that, that well, mostly saying that, that markets are psychological, but, uh, and God knows what actually led let it down, but but uh, at, at any rate, to the extent that people who are investing uh, have any sense, they are they are not feeling confident about our ability to handle this economically. Well, a zombie is a corpse come back to life, a creature that's impossible to kill. Zombies started out in voodoo cults in Haiti, but the zombies you are arguing with in your new book are not Haitian. No, and they're not people. They're ideas. They're ideas that that should be dead, that have been killed by evidence, but, but refuse to, to stop. They just keep shambling along, eating our brains, and they play an unfortunately large role in the way we talk about, about the economy and other issues. And what are those zombies? Well, there's a bunch, but uh, the two most important ones are tax cuts, especially tax cuts for the rich pay for themselves, which has been tested many times, has never, ever worked, but it's now still official doctrine of the Republican Party. And climate change is a hoax, that nothing is happening, it's not man-made, and besides, there's nothing we can do about it. A completely different question that, that uh, arises in your new book, Arguing with the Zombies. Why is it that the people who think climate change is a hoax are also against universal health care? In the abstract, these two issues have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, um, and it is an interesting question. You, you know, you, you'd like to say, occasionally find people saying with, with an air of great wisdom, well, politics is not one-dimensional. There are many issues. But in fact, U.S. politics is one-dimensional. Tell me where somebody stands on climate change, and I can tell you where they stand on, 
on tax cuts for the rich, and I can tell you where they stand on universal health care, and uh, um, they all do line up together. I would say that there are two reasons. One is one is that people, I think on both sides, but certainly people on the right believe that there's a kind of a halo effect, uh, that if you can point to successful government action on any front, that the, the public will become more receptive to the idea of doing things on other fronts. So if you can point to successful government action to protect the environment, then people might say, well, if we can protect the environment and clean the air, why can't we also provide universal health care? The line that says the government can't do anything good or anything right is imperiled if you do anything good, even if it's on an issue that, that really should be something everybody favors, like not destroying the planet. The other thing is that zombie ideas are kept alive uh, in large part, not entirely, uh, but a lot of what keeps the zombies shambling along is money for billionaires. And the uh, many of the same financial interests that that push the line that tax cuts pay for themselves and universal health care is impossible also have a financial stake in keeping us burning coal as long as possible. Well, the nation has endorsed Bernie for president. I know you have some worries about Bernie and his economic program. The column you wrote on that recently got almost 3,000 comments. What are your worries and, and how, how big are they? I'm actually not very worried about Bernie's program, partly because I, there, I think there's zero chance that, that the more ambitious parts of it would actually be implemented. Medicare for all with the, with the abolition of private insurance, as opposed to you know, something like a public option that lets people buy into Medicare is not going to pass even a Democratic Congress. So the, and I'm not really very worried about his his economic program. I find it disturbing that he calls himself a socialist when I actually know something about socialism. He's not a socialist. He's what the Europeans would call a uh, a social democrat. He favors strong welfare state, uh, increased bargaining power for workers, universal health care, all of which I support too. Uh, he. He describes Denmark as a role model, as at which I agree that Denmark is a very good role model. Uh, the Danes are very insistent that they are not socialists, and Bernie doesn't scare me at all. I don't even the, the economic program. Even if he could get everything he wants, which he can't, uh, I I think the it's not a problem. I think we, the economy is much more resilient to high taxes and and strong social programs than the right wing wants us to believe. And let's talk specifically about the wealth tax proposed by Elizabeth Warren. You're a economist. What's your what's your professional assessment of the wealth tax proposal? To some extent, it's a leap into the unknown, because we haven't really ever seen anybody do this. America invented progressive taxation, believe it or not, back in the early 20th century, and, and we've done it successfully on incomes, but a, a really large progressive wealth tax has never been done. Nobody I know things that would be destructive to the economy. No one is really concerned that, that people, entrepreneurship will be discouraged because somebody uh, is, is worried about having to pay taxes on his second $50 million, right? Uh, but there, there are questions about how much revenue you can actually raise, how, how easily will wealthy people manage to, uh, to avoid the tax. And that's a hard one because previous wealth taxes have always been kind of partial in scope so that it was relatively easy for rich people to to shunt their wealth into uh, make basically engage in accounting maneuvers that, that shielded them from taxes. And the proposals out there 
uh, are for something much more comprehensive and then views differ. So I, I tend to be on the optimistic side. When, when I read that Elizabeth Warren was getting uh, Emmanuel Saez and, and, and Gabrielle Zuckman to put together her tax proposal, that, that's, like, that's like getting Beyonce to sing at your wedding, right? These are the, <laughs> the best guys in the, in the field. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, so this was, this was, th- these are, these are very smart guys. Now there are some other very smart guys who are dubious, but I, I think the worst thing that could happen is it fails to yield the revenue that we hope for. I, I, I don't see a problem with it as a, as an economic uh, measure. You have a section in your book, arguing with zombies on the end game of the conservatives. And you have a quote from David Frum. If the conservatives become convinced that they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will reject democracy, close quote, David Frum. That's frightening. Do you think he's right? Oh, yes. I mean, we're we're pretty much there already. I mean, this is, uh, do you think if, if Trump loses that he will go quietly? We've already seen really massive efforts at vote, voter suppression on Dark nights, I think that America is going down the Hungarian route. Uh, on paper, we still have democratic institutions, but in practice, thanks to uh, vote suppression, intimidation of the news media, gerrymandering, et cetera, et cetera, we become a, a, a one-party authoritarian state. And we, again, we've seen that happen, uh, you know, not, not in a distant past. You don't have to talk uh, Adolf Hitler. You just talk about Viktor Orban and what has happened to Hungary since 2010. Look, look at what's happened to Hungary in, uh, in, in recent years. And uh, same thing happening in Poland. It's very clear that we have the same forces and the same motives at work. Uh, the, only, the only real difference, I, I think, is that Trump is not as smart as Viktor Orban. If he was, we, we'd probably be lost already. Paul Krugman, his new book has the terrific title, Arguing with Zombies. Paul, thanks for all of your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Okay, take care. Maybe you missed the news. Tuesday, there were Democratic primaries in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona. For our analysis, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. And his new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, will be out on May 5th. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back. It's good to be with you, John. And I promise uh, when we're through all this, I'm bringing my book tour right to your door in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) Before we talk about the primaries that happened Tuesday and, and the one that didn't, I have to ask you about the senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, who is now saying that paid sick leave for people with the coronavirus will make workers lazy. He's opposing the House bill that provides for paid sick leave, which he says is, quote, incentivizing people not to show up for work. You have to think this thing through, he said. That is a quote. Remind us, who is Ron Johnson, and why is he saying these terrible things? Ron Johnson is someone who has very rarely, if ever, thought anything through. Um, (laughs) He is is, is not held up as the intellectual giant of the Senate um, Mm -hmm. or of Washington, and that's, that's that's, of course, a field in which there's a lot of competition. Yes. Um, and 
he is the classic embodiment of the businessman who goes into politics and thinks he can, quote unquote, apply the principles of business to politics. Uh, the reality is he's a very wealthy guy who's part of a family business um, that uh, has allowed him to you know, kind of noodle around in politics. And it happened, he used his own money or a portion of it uh, to put himself in a position where he could win a Senate seat in one very Republican cycle, 2010, and then retain it in uh, the very turbulent cycle of 2016. Uh, but the thing to understand about him is he is, he's not a Donald Trump Republican although he's been exceptionally, almost absurdly loyal to the president, especially uh, during the whole UK, Ukraine controversy. Um, he literally is sort of a, a, an on-round obsessive. Um, and that puts him at the fringe even of the Republican Party. In most cases, you would just laugh at him or you know, be offended by him. But at this point, what he is saying is, is genuinely destructive because he is talking about people who are being told by their president, by their governors, by mayors across this country, that they need to, they need to stay home. Uh, they need not to be in workplaces where it's possible the virus could spread. Uh, my neighbor in Wisconsin uh, is a bartender and uh, she lost her, her work last night. They closed the oh. bars in Wisconsin last night. And the notion that, that we're in some sort of situation where she was incentivized uh, you know, by some government, small government grant that might keep her whole for a, a few weeks not to work, it's not just stupid, it's cruel. Excellent. Well, let's talk about the primaries on Tuesday, and let's start with the one that was supposed to be held that was postponed because of the coronavirus, Ohio. The postponement didn't go that well. It had its own political drama, which I think a lot of people might have missed. It was unbelievable. Voting rights specialists, people who've watched this stuff for years and really, you know, have a lot of experience, have watched it in some, some very chaotic situations and very horrible circumstances, said this, this beat all. It was, it was almost incomprehensibly messed up. And we can talk more deeply about the concept of postponing and delaying which yeah. is, is one that we don't like, but we can also understand here. So it's not, it's not just to be upset with the postponement. It is how this government or, or this governor, Mike DeWine, did it. He, he waited until the afternoon before the primary. And then he said, well, I, you know, I think we probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to ask a judge. And the judge you know, reviewed it and said, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, don't do it because things are already, the, the wheels are already turning. Um, and again, you may disagree with the judge. The judge may have been wrong, but you got that ruling. And so then Mike DeWine, who obviously was assuming the judge would side with him, turned around an hour or so later and has his, you know, health administrator, the state employee, declare it's a public health problem. And so they shut the primary down anyway. Then, you know, candidates who were on the ballot, a candidate who was on the ballot, moved an urgent court action. This is literally late night on the eve of the voting, appealed it to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court reviewed it 
and very quickly came down with a ruling on the morning of election day saying that you could delay the election. So you had this incredible chaos and voters have got a lot of things on their mind right now. There's a lot going on. And so people who really wanted to go vote or who were thinking about it, whatever, you know, suddenly they're hit with this just chaos. So this was done in exactly the wrong way. No matter what you think about postponement, it was just done precisely wrong. And then let's talk about the primaries that did happen. How did the virus affect the voting in, the, in Arizona, in Illinois, in Florida? A lot. It, it was different in different places. Now, here's where we start to get real important measures on how we might approach these things going forward. In Arizona and Florida, they have a lot of early voting and a lot of mail voting. And as a result, uh, they got a lot of ballots in before things started to really you know, spiral out of control. And frankly, before, even as things were getting rougher, because people who had a mail ballot were able to fill it out, get it in. Um, you also had some heroic uh, election officials in Arizona who you know, went to the mat trying to make sure this thing would work. And so high marks to them. But it was still a lot of complaints in both states and uh, situations where people couldn't find polling places that had closed, people... Uh, poll workers who had been told to, that you shouldn't be going out in crowds decided not to go out in crowds, and so they didn't have enough poll yeah. workers. The biggest problems were in Illinois. They also have some structures for absentee voting, things like that, but but still much more of a tradition of in-person voting. And uh, it was just a mess. Uh, they had situations where poll workers did not show up. And literally people came to polling places that just had a sign that said nobody showed up. They had circumstances where uh, election officials in Chicago were literally saying, you know, as you went into, as the, as the polls were opening, hey, if, if you can be an election clerk, we'll swear you in right there. And then as you went into the day, there were complaints from all over from poll workers who were saying, look, we don't have the, the, equipment we need. We don't have the materials we need. They actually kept the polls open for quite a while in sh- longer in Chicago uh, because uh, they were you know, struggling to, to, to make this thing work. So problems are real. We need to have elections. What is to be done? Yeah, that's the core question. And we're really in uncharted territory. I did a piece for the magazine this week where I talked to a, a lot of the best people, I would argue, in the country on these issues, folks like Congressman Jamie Raskin and Dale Ho from uh, the ACLU and, and, and folks from the Brennan Center. And, you know, look, they were all nuanced and, and reasonable and they understood the complexity of the moment we're in. Uh, but at, at a certain point, they came down to sort of two basic conclusions. One, postponement of a regularly scheduled election is something we should never be casual about. Because regularly scheduled elections are sort of a, a, a core underpinning of our democracy. So that's something you do as a last choice. And if you can find ways to avoid a postponement or a delay, that's great. That's, that's superb. And if you've got time, the best way to do it is to implement uh, a combination of interventions, which are, first and foremost, no excuses absentee voting. Second, a huge infrastructure for mail voting, i.e. you mail the ballots to the people, they can mail them back. 
And then probably a little bit of flexibility for some maintenance of in-person voting, but in a very, very well-structured model, probably with a lot of early voting. And that's for folks who, for whatever reason, still go that way. But the, the heart of it is the, the mail voting. And here's the fascinating thing, John. The state of Washington, which was the early epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak around, you know, in the Kirkland area, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they ran a whole election after the state of emergency had been declared at, at a point when businesses were telling people not to come in to work, when some schools were starting to shut down. You understand that in Washington state, they were way ahead of where a lot of the, other, the rest of the country is on the, the, the concern about the spread of this virus, and yet they conducted a whole election uh, successfully with actually a, a very good turnout. And the reason for that is because they have all mail voting. So when mm-hmm. you do it all by mail, it, it functions. So the message here is be like Washington State, but a lot of states are not like Washington State. Exactly. Some states are not up to speed. Some of them actually have rules and laws that make it very, very hard uh, to do early voting, absentee voting, a lot of other things. Some have sort of a little bit of vote by mail, but not a sufficient infrastructure for it. A lot of them are very stressed as regards resources. And the bottom line is they now are getting incredibly conflicting messages, right? Don't have 50 people, don't have 10 people in a space, but then have a mass turnout election. And so are we going to have postponements? Whether you like it or not, the answer is yes. And that is that then takes us to a next stage of this. Uh, and that is we need to have protocols and procedures for how we maintain the primaries. Uh, and then we ought to take all of this, put it in a box, pause, take a deep breath, and recognize that while you can have some flexibility as regards primary dates. You can move them. They have been moved. That does happen. The November election, you can't, you can't have an option of delaying it, of, of postponing it. That's, that is incredibly damaging. And so what we need to do right now is take the advice of Ron Wyden, the senator from Oregon, and some other members uh, who have a bill in Congress right now and the variations between the Senate and the House, but basically the same thing, that would really push toward vote by mail, give the states the resources to do it, and make this thing work. Um, we are not, in my opinion, in a position where we're going to see an election postponed or delayed. That's not what I would imagine would happen. But what I could imagine happening is that it would if we had a lingering virus problem, hopefully not, or a situation where the virus eased in the summer but then returned in the fall? Hopefully not. But if by chance something like that happened, we could end up with a very low turnout election that is, is just a completely unacceptable circumstance. Just a quick two more minutes. The outcome of the election was that Bernie lost pretty decisively in all the states that voted on Tuesday. What's left for Bernie at this point? Bernie Sanders has said, uh, in conjunction with his campaign, that they're going to assess uh, how to go forward, and they're going to do it in consultation with their supporters. That is a classic Bernie Sanders approach. This is, you know, he has a slogan for his campaign, not me, us. And 
that really is where he's at. He is a movement political figure. Uh, it's, it's how he thinks about it. And so you're going to see a lot of consultation. You're going to see a lot of listening to his supporters. And frankly, um, you'll probably see some push and pull. You know, some people who really want him to go forward, some people who think that, that it's just, you know, it's just not a doable thing. Um, it's all going to be run against the reality of this, uh, you know, coronavirus outbreak, all the responses to it, and the chance that things could get worse before they get better. Um, that's going to create a lot of pressure on him. Uh, I can tell you as somebody who's interviewed him a lot, who's been around him a lot, he's somebody who can handle that pressure. He will work his way through it. He will talk to a lot of people, and he will figure out an approach. And what it will be, I can't tell you. Because right now, John, if you're making predictions about anything, you know, be it healthcare, economics, or politics, uh, you're a much braver person than I. But I do want to emphasize that that for Sanders, this really is a a, a not me us moment, and he'll think about that on a lot of levels and make a decision that that I would expect, you know, whether he continues his candidacy or suspends, but I would suspect still aims in a big way at influencing the platform of the party, its trajectory forward. Uh, so for those who don't like Bernie Sanders, I would have a message. I would not presume for a second that he's going away. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about the Kushners and the coronavirus. And for that, of course, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She's also our chief Jared correspondent. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. There is a story we've been following avidly about how Jared Kushner, even though he's not in charge of the White House response to the coronavirus, took it upon himself to uh, reach out to gather uh, information about what they should do. And where did he turn for help? Well, he's not in charge, but he's sort of being tasked with research by the White House. And he turned to someone. Well, we have a word for this kind of family relationship in Yiddish. Or in Hebrew, it's called Mahaton. It's okay. It's a little complicated. This is Jared's brother's wife's father. Okay. (laughs) And uh, Jared's brother's Josh Kushner, and Josh Kushner is married to the supermodel Carly Kloss, and Carly Kloss's father happens to be um, an emergency room doctor in New York with 30 years experience. So uh, I guess Jared asked by Trump to figure out what the heck to do because Pence is just so bad at running the response to the coronavirus, went to this guy, his brother's father-in-law, and said, what can you tell me? Do you have any any recommendations? So the, the uh, father-in-law of Josh, Kushner, Kurt Kloss, Dr. Kurt Kloss, went onto a Facebook group called something like EM Doc, 
Um, and it's, it's a big Facebook group of emergency room doctors. And, uh, he asked whether, um, they had any recommendations to make to his very good connection to someone in the White House. <laughs> and they responded all evening with all sorts of, uh, ideas. He calls them and they are called among themselves. If I can use swear words. On podcasts, yes. We're a podcast, yes. Yes. They are called Baffords, the doctors on this group, or badass fucking emergency room doctors. Baffords. <laughs> and that's the word that they use among themselves there. And they gave them a lot of good recommendations, I thought, when I read the list of recommendations. But most of them don't seem to have been taken by the White House yet, if they ever are. But it's kind of a weird thing, right? to go to a sort of boomer online chat room basically and and get recommendations there when you have something called the CDC. Well, this takes us into the interesting territory of the good Kushners, Jared's brother Josh <laughs> and his wife Carly Kloss. And they're they're sort of prominent liberals. They make clear they don't vote for uh, Jared's father-in-law. And Carly Kloss, supermodel. I mean, everybody in this family has to marry supermodels. But uh, she <laughs> is different from a lot of supermodels. Tell us about Carly Kloss. Well, she's sort of different from a lot of supermodels, but she's done some special things. She, first of all, she married into this crazy family of the Kushners. They wouldn't even, the parents wouldn't even speak to her for the six years while they were going out until she converted to Judaism, which she finally did do. She's a lifelong Democrat who says it's pretty weird being uh, related to Jared and, and Ivanka. And she then went to NYU uh, and is getting a degree there or got a degree there. And while she was there and uh, as a model for Victoria's Secret, it dawned on her, because she was taking a course on feminist thought, maybe being a model at Victoria's Secret was not in line with feminist thinking over the years. And she actually ended her contract. She, she stayed in her contract to the end and then did not re-up, even though it's, of course, a hugely valuable deal for a supermodel. So she's come to things, perhaps, to thinking about things, serious things, a little late, but she at least is really thinking about serious things. They are pro-gun control. They're just very typical New York liberals. So Carly Kloss quit working for Victoria's Secret after taking a course on feminism at NYU. As professors, right. this has to warm our hearts. Yes, it does. And I wish she were my student. Also, she did this cool thing. I think the name of it was Coding with Carly. Now, yeah. she's a supermodel and therefore she's kind of a, you know, celebrity figure. And so she decided that girls weren't learning to code well enough. And she put together this group that teaches girls to code. So that's a, a great thing, too, I think. Getting back to the Kushners and the coronavirus, we need to check in on how Ivanka is doing. Well, you know how Ivanka is always going to, like, meetings that no one can figure out why Ivanka should be there, et cetera. Yeah. So she yes. went to one recently in Australia, 
And I forget who the Australian official was standing next to her, but um, he stood there in a photograph, and then it turned out he tested positive for the virus. So she's working from home because she's one step away from, from the virus. But apparently hasn't been tested yet, which is weird because the Trump family seems almost preternaturally able to get tests where no one else can. So Ivanka is working from home since she may have been exposed to the coronavirus. And then, of course, there's uh, the number one son, Don Jr. What's Don Jr. been doing with about the coronavirus? Well, baby Don is pretty much out there. Uh, and what he has been asserting on the news, basically on the sort of news, is that um, the Democrats hope that the disease will kill millions of Americans. The story is uh, Trump was doing great. The economy was going great guns. The Democrats were in disarray. Obviously, there was nothing to do but cause a giant pandemic worldwide that would destroy the economy and kill millions of Americans. And that's what the Democrats want. So Don kind of has stepped back a little bit from this. But when this is my favorite, when Mike Pence was asked about Trump Jr.'s remarks, he said, when you see voices on our side pushing back on outrageous and irresponsible rhetoric on the other side, I think it's important and I think it's justified meaning it was justified to say that Democrats want to kill millions. Just, you know, unbelievable stuff. So Jared has not only been tasked with finding out something about responding to the coronavirus, he's got some other uh, assignments too, doesn't he, at the White House? When you think of his plate, it's like a, a plate at a UJA dinner. It's filled with a billion, <laughs> you know, and it has one little tiny, tiny area left for coronavirus. So he's in charge of peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine. We have to think about how well that's going. Uh, he's in charge of getting a wall built between the U.S. and Mexico, little by little. He's tackling the opioid epidemic. I mean, these are things that they have given him to do. He's reducing mass incarceration, supposedly, and he's overhauling the federal bureaucracy. So why not to put a little room between the potatoes and the roast beef uh, for coronavirus? <laughs> Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent. Amy, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just $0.60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash 
podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.